Good morning, First Baptist family. My name is Corey Barnes. I serve as one of the pastors here at First Baptist New Orleans. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. First thing I want to tell you is if we have any guests with us this morning, we just want to let you know that you are a guest of honor, and we're so privileged to have you. I want to let you know just about a couple of ways that we would love to connect with you. One is that there is a card in the pew in front of you, and one of those cards just has contact information. And we would love just to, just to know a little bit more about you so that we can reach out to you our desire at First Baptist New Orleans is that we, we would be a family who is worshiping God and going about the mission of God together. So if you're a guest with us, we would love to have that information. There's also an option for you to just text the number that's up on your screen if you'd rather do that through your phone. And we would love to reach out to you and find out some more about you. Also want to let you know if you're a guest this morning that I am not the lead pastor of the church, and I say that so you'll know that if, you know, you're here this morning and you don't really like the sermon that much, it'll get better next week. So you can come then when uh, Pastor Chad Gilbert will be back with us. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. As we continue a celebration of Advent, I'll tell you something that I'm really excited about as we've been walking through Advent, and that is... We're celebrating Advent, which as, you know, uh, Nate already reminded us, is a, a celebration of the, the coming of Christ. And I would tell us it's a, a connection for us as New Testament believers to think back about how our sisters and brothers in the Old Testament anticipated the coming of Christ, and then seeing how we can look back on that and say everything they hoped for happened and more and then we look at how we are anticipating the coming of Christ and his second coming. And it's an assurance for us in this season that everything we hope for and more is going to come about at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we're in this season. And I'm thankful that we've chosen kind of some non-traditional Advent passages. I loved last week the, the sermon from, from Justin Langford, who came and, and just preached to us from Revelation chapter 12 and reminded us that when Christ comes, he is going to defeat the dragon. And so what that equips us to do is in the meantime, to live faithfully as the people of God. What an what a encouragement for us in this season. And this morning and then next week, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to kind of tell you just how these passages connect us with Advent. That we're going to be reminded of what it is that Jesus does when he's present with us, and this morning, especially as we consider humility, we're going to be asking, how is it that we're to live in this, this life of anticipation of Jesus coming again? How should the presence of God with us now and the greater presence to come, how should it shape the way that I think about myself and the way that I think about others? So that's where we're going to be this morning. Just a few things about the church in Philippi before we read our text. This is a church that Paul knows well. You can read in Acts chapter 16 that Paul's the church planner who helps establish the church in Philippi. He knows these folks, and they've been good to Paul. You can see that if you read chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. He's got this whole Thanksgiving passage where he just, man, makes it really clear that these are people who Paul loves. Not only that, they've also supported Paul financially. You can read about that in chapter 4. Here's one of my favorite things about Philippians. When Paul thanks people for partnering with him financially, it's super awkward, right? I like that because I've had to write those kind of letters and say those kind of things. It's been awkward for me, and it's encouraging me that it was awkward to Paul a long time ago. So, so those are the kind of things that he has, the kind of relationship that he has with the church. There's also some issues in the church. 
there's grumbling that's happening. And so in Philippians 2.14, he said, he's reminded them already, do everything without grumbling or disputing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to call out two sisters in the church. And, and by the way, these two sisters apparently are being called out because Paul loves them, calls them out with a gentle spirit, but he does call them out by name, saying, I plead with the Odeon, I plead with Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. So, so these are some of the things that are happening in this church. And here's another thing that's interesting about this, and I think it really shapes the way we read the verses we're going to be in this morning. Paul's writing this from prison. Paul is under arrest. Paul is, is writing this as someone who, who really doesn't have a lot of rights in this point. And yet he's writing to a group of Christians who live in the city of Philippi, and, and they've actually got special status as citizens of Rome. So, so there's a, a tension here. The same government that, that is now oppressing Paul and is holding Paul as prisoner also grants these people in Philippi a lot of rights and so here's one of the questions that we're going to see both this week and next week as we read through Paul's message to the Philippians, and that is, what are you going to do with these rights? Are you going to make life about you, or are you going to do something else? Here's my experience with rights. I find that, that typically when I realize that, that I have a right to something, I really cling to it. A few years ago, I was, I was in a country, I was actually in a country in the North African and Middle East affinity group that Noah was talking about a little bit ago, and I'd had a great trip, and I will just tell you, I wasn't in a country where I was in any particular danger or anything. I'd had a great trip, I'd had fun working with, with local pastors and sisters and brothers in that area, but I will tell you, I was ready to come home. I'm always ready to come home, I'm ready to see Kayla, I'm ready to see my girls, but I will just tell you, I have been in places before where if I was in the, the capital city and I got stuck for a few days, I'd have been like, all right, this is kind of cool. It wasn't one of those places, okay? I wanted to come home. And not only that, I was starting to feel a little bit under the weather. I was starting to feel a little bit sick, and, and I wanted to make sure that I could get on a plane so that if I had to go and, and, and get any kind of medical care, I wanted it to be at home. That's, that's what I wanted. I was ready to come home. And, and on our way to the airport, we, we hit a problem. There was an event that was going on in the city that we were leaving, and, and that event was actually causing the, the local authorities to just block traffic to the airport so important folks could get to the airport. And so we kept going through these traffic stops, and finally we hit a traffic stop where the, the, the INB missionary who was with us, you could tell he really didn't know we were going to get through. It looked like we might have to reschedule our flights. And he said, all right, guys, we're going to try something. So I take out your passports, okay? So we took out our passports. And he said, open up your passports. So we opened up our passports to the picture phase. And he said, when we walk up to these guys, hold up your passports and smile. Okay? So we, we pull up to these soldiers, right? And they're asking him a bunch. Of, we don't know what they're saying. They're speaking in another language. I'm back there in the back like this, right? All right. And so, so the, the, then all of a sudden, we get waved into another lane. Brent, Brent our, the, our missionary friend, puts his, his flashers on. We go straight to the airport. We fly through all these other traffic stops. Like, Brent, what did you tell these guys? He said, I told them you were very large, important Americans. That's what he told us. I went through security, and I took this passport, and I cling to it just the whole time. Because I just learned, like, man, this will get me through. I'll get home as long as I've got this piece of paper. So when I put all that stuff and the little thing to go through the metal detectors, this stayed with me. I held on to this. When I did the whole, you have to do this in the metal detector, this was in my hands. I clung to it. What are we going to do with the many privileges that we have? What are we going to cling to? It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I would ask that we stand together 
for the reading of God's word. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Let's pray together, church. Father God, I pray this morning that you would convict us of what your word is. These are your words to your people. So Father, remind us that as we read your words, we hear you speak that you speak with truth and with power. And so, Father, because of this, because these are your words, let us be committed as a church and as a people to do what they say and to commit ourselves to faithfulness to your word. And, Father, I ask that you also make all of us very aware that my words come from the lips of sinful man. And so, Father, if I say anything because of intentional or unintentional false motives that, are, that, that in any way are out of line with the truth of your Scripture, then I pray, Father God, that you would be gracious to our church and as the Holy Spirit moves among individual believers and drives us to read and understand your word for ourselves, that any error I might commit would be identified, that it would be brought up to me, that I would repent first before you and second before my church family so that First Baptist New Orleans would move forward in purity of doctrine, not so that we would be puffed up in knowledge, but that we might worship you in spirit and in truth and proclaim the gospel to New Orleans and the nations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the way we're going to go through this text in these four verses. We're actually going to work through these four verses backwards. We're going to start in verses 3 and 4, then we're going to look at verse 2, and then we're going to look at verse 1. But before we do that, I want to just, in one sentence, tell you what, what I think it is that Paul is saying in this passage. Okay, so, so we're going to read this in a sentence, and I'm just going to kind of break it down. This is what Paul is saying. So, so Paul is saying... Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is with us, we are united in the common goal of being a humble people. So because the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with us, we are to be united in the common goal of being a humble people. So I want to make sure we start there because here's something I want to protect against as we go through this message. This is a text that has just a lot of practical applications. And, and praise God that his word is so applicable for us. But I also want us to be careful that, that this passage starts and this sermon is going to end locating humility in the presence of God among us. Because if we don't get that, it's going to become something that we could think being humble is just some type of skill or some type of life hack that would apply just as much to the Lions Club as it does to the Church of Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that this humility flows from the presence of God among us. And we're going to see that as we walk through the passage. So beginning in verses 3 through 4, let's walk through this passage. Here's the first point that I want us to see. Point number one, humility requires us to be others-centered and not self-centered. Humility requires us to be other-centered and not self-centered. One of the reasons I wanted to start in these verses is they answer an important question for us. What is humility? 
and, and I actually found whenever I was preparing for this sermon, it's, it's obvious that this is about humility. The word humility is used in the passage. We're talking about placing others over self. We, we also, you might even have a heading in your Bible that talks about this passage being about Christian humility. So that's obvious. But I started to think, well, well what is humility? Like, 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 how do we just get a working definition of what humility is? And I actually found that a little bit more difficult than I thought it would be and found the definition most clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So I want to start there. What is humility? So here's what I want to, want to commend us to, that in this passage, we are being told that humility is avoiding a prideful mindset and following a truly humble mindset. Let me explain these, okay? So first, avoiding a prideful mindset. In a prideful mindset, the focus is on self. And we see this, we're told to avoid this in verse 3, because look at how verse 3 starts. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, sisters and brothers, I just want to tell you something. We are a culture, we are a people, not just those folks out there, but those of us in here, we are a part of a culture that, if we are honest, we uplift and love selfish ambition and conceit. Not only that, but we love it and recognize it in sneaky ways. In other words, there might be things that, that we actually might look like we're pursuing humility, but in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we're we are pursuing selfish ambition and conceit. Let me make a couple of, of observations here. One is this, that word conceit is a powerful word. It, it's a word that, that the King James Version actually really helps us see what it means. The, the King James would translate this as vain glory. The word literally means empty glory. So look out for selfish ambition, self-promotion, making myself out to be a big deal, and empty glory. In other words, taking credit for things that we have no business taking credit for. That's a prideful mindset. And I want to tell you that in our culture, we see this prideful mindset uplifted in various ways. Let me give you an example. I want you to think about the music that you listen to and whether or not it promotes a humble mindset or a prideful mindset. There's a lot of popular music, and not just popular music of a particular generation, popular music of whatever generation, whatever genre you like, that a popular theme is going to be that the person singing, therefore us when we sing it, is saying something like, I am the best, I am the greatest, I am the champion, that, that I'm uplifting myself. And sisters and brothers, I just want to tell you, if this is something that we make a part of our mantra, it actually seeps in and becomes the way we think about ourselves. Those of you who either follow athletics or are athletes yourself, I want to tell you that this is something in athletic culture that often seeps in. And, and so one of the reasons that I think often we recognize humility so distinctly among athletes, when we see someone who's an athlete that is humble, it's because that seems to so break with this culture that's driven by victory and I'm great and I'm good and I'm going to win. This is a culture. These are cultural forces that push us towards pride. So we avoid a culture of pride and deceit. That's one of the things we have to do. But I'm going to tell you, if we're going to avoid 
selfish ambition, self-promotion, and empty glory. It's going to take more than what, what I have been conditioned in my culture to think about when it comes to humility. Because I grew up in the deep south. I grew up in Georgia. And in Georgia, here's what humility looks like. You do something good, and you do this. You're like, oh, shucks, I'm not really so good at that. <laughs> and here's what you're doing. You're actually behaving in a sort of way that if I'm honest, when I do that, and listen, I'm going to tell you, I do that. Some of you have seen me do that. And I'm going to tell you, you want to know why I'm doing it? Out of selfish ambition and a pursuit of empty glory. Because often I say things, and often we say things, and often we're culturally conditioned, and because of our sin, to say things that actually we're saying things in a certain way. We're deferring any type of compliment or any type of praise in such a way that I'm actually responding because I'm playing this game in my mind where, where pride comes in through the back door. And what happens is I say, if I, if I respond in this way, not only are they going to think I'm good at whatever they said I was good at, but they're going to think I'm humble about it. But that is a very real way that a lot of us try to fight pride. So we avoid a prideful mindset. We avoid selfish ambition and empty glory. What do we embrace? We embrace a truly humble mindset. Embrace a truly humble mindset. And here's what's so clear for us in this passage. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Whenever I was trying to think through, okay, what's humility? I actually found it easier to think about humble people than I could just a dictionary definition of what was humble. One of the, the people in my life who has just left an imprint of what humility looks like and, and, and left an imprint on my memory and on who I am is my grandmother. My grandmother's name was Isla Jo Barnes. She, she, she was this, this matriarch of the family, right? I mean, I, I wish that you guys could have met my grandmother. If you had been around her with her grandchildren for more than 10 minutes, you would have said that woman is a saint. Not because she would have done anything particularly virtuous, but you would have seen the depravity of her seven grandchildren and that we were alive and she allowed us to live and said there's something special about this woman. My grandmother was humble. Let me tell you why she was humble. It wasn't because there, she said she wasn't good at anything. In fact, one of the things that I remember as I've considered and thought back about my grandma, she was good at a lot of things, and she wasn't embarrassed by being good at things. But one of the things that my grandmother was good at was fixing things. She, she was just a handy person, and, and, and she would tell us that. She would actually, I remember her asking for Christmas when I was a little kid, and I said, Grandma, what do you want for Christmas? She, she said, well, here's some tools, honey, that I would like. That's, that's, that's something that she enjoyed doing, she was good at. My grandfather was awful at being handy, awful at it. Let me tell you a story that, that tells me about my grandmother's humility. We were, we were working on something in the house. This, I'm going to just tell you all this. This is how redneck I grew up, okay? It was a shotgun shell reloading press. That's what we were working on. We were working on that. My grandpa and I were. It was broken. And my grandma came over, and in, and in two seconds, she knew what was wrong. She told us what was wrong. And grandpa said, Joe, you get out of here and let us work on this. And I remember a couple of times her coming by and saying, hey, John, I really think that I can just fix that for you really quick. And hear her, him shooing her away. And I remember her just sighing and leaving. And then later on, Grandma came and she fixed it. And I asked her, Grandma, why why you put up with that? And her response to me was, I care more about how your grandpa feels about things than I do about whether or not y'all are loading shotgun shells this afternoon. She had put the needs of others over 
her need to prove herself. She was being humble. We're told here in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather the interest of others. The command here is a biblical mandate for me to put aside what I want and look to your good instead. And for you to put aside what you want and look to my good instead. And being able to do this all because our satisfaction is ultimately found in Christ, not in our own self-promotion tendencies or our own empty glory. Again, all of this flows from the presence of God. Do you want to know if you're really humble? Ask yourself this question. If what I, it's what I am doing, saying, or thinking actually about somebody else, or is it ultimately about me? Let's make some application here. Let me, let me tell you a point of application that I want to think about. Same application, really, but for two different groups. And this is something I want us to kind of zoom in on First Baptist New Orleans and think about our setting and our context and how we apply humble behavior. There are some of you in our church body, some beloved sisters and brothers in our church body, who are well-known for your talents and position. Let me warn you against the poison that the world spews at you, that you are great because of your position or because of something inside yourself. Let me admonish you and encourage you to be humble and to look to how whatever authority or prestige or skills or talents you might have can be used to serve others because in doing so, you will please God. So here's what it is. If you are someone who is talented and has prestige and has authority, then your default should be God has given me this for some reason to glorify him through the service of others. That should be your default. So humility is not being ashamed of the position. Humility is not being ashamed of your talents and gifts. Humility is saying, God, you are sovereign over this. And so you're giving me this opportunity to do something. Here's the second group. We've got some folks in our church, some beloved sisters and brothers, and you fly under the radar. You're not on the who's who list of New Orleans. You're not at the top of your profession. Let me warn you against the poison that this world spews at you, that you have no value unless you become great in the eyes of the world. I encourage you, be humble and look to how you can serve others through whatever God has given you to do. And I pray that it gives you tremendous joy to know that God is every bit as pleased with you when you glorify him by serving others as he is with any politician, president, or pastor. So the application here is the same. Seek humility. And this is something that we do regardless of how the world sees us. The task is the same. God, you have given me something to do. How am I going to serve others and in doing so glorify you? That's what humility looks like. So we, stop, we start here with the question or, or with the, the point, humility requires us to be other-centered and not self-centered. Now let's go into verse 2. So we're working backwards. We're working up towards the first verses. Verse 2, humility is a common goal. Humility is a common goal. I want to do a little bit of work here just looking at the way that your translation might read. So my translation here, the Christian Standard Bible says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's possible that your translation says something like being of the same mind 
or if you have the, the King James Version, something like like-minded. So listen, there's, there's obviously a reason that this is the way that these things are translated. I think it's easy, regardless of what translation we read, to read through this and think, well, what this is saying is that Christians ought to kind of have a hive mind, right? We, ought, we all ought to think as one. We, we ought to, to kind of just have a, a patterning in the way that we think. And so, so we should just share a common disposition towards all things. I don't think that is what Paul is saying. I don't think that's what makes sense with the entirety of the teaching of Scripture, because what we see in Scripture is that God has created us, and we have lots of different gifts and talents and dispositions and cultures. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, multinational kingdom of people. And so the goal here is not some cult-like conformity. The goal that Paul is laying out as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write is this. The goal is that we would have a similar Christ-like obedience, that that would be our goal. So let's look at this. Christ-like focus, not cult-like conformity. I want to say this. This is not just a strategy, this this being humble and being focused on humility. We've got to protect against that because we're a a culture, and I'll, I'll just say this, my culture, higher education, church life, my, my, the, the stuff I'm in on a regular basis, we love strategies, right? We love mission statements. We love goals. And those can be good tools. But I want us to understand this is, this is more than that. What, what we are being told here in verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, meaning thinking the same about the same sort of thing, Okay, having the same sort of love, united in the same spirit, intent on one purpose. What this is telling us is we as a church ought to have humility as a common goal. And here's what this drives us to. It drives us to a very simple truth. Being humble should be a mark of God's people. Being humble should be a mark of God's people. I hope and pray And we're going to talk in a minute about how this connects pastorally. I I hope and pray that as we look at these texts, not, not just today, but also next week, as we consider humility, that one of the things that we're going to look at is we're going to begin praying and seeking ways that we would say, God, may humility be a mark of the believers at First Baptist New Orleans. May we be a truly other-centered people. May I have a concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ. May I have a concern for those who are lost and dying without the gospel. My desire, and, and, and this is not my desire, this is God's desire, it's Paul's desire. We're about to ask the question, what does he mean when he says, make my joy complete? It should be a desire here for us that what we see when we're talking about service Whenever we're talking about our our deacons serving others, when we're talking about evangelism, when we're talking about global missions, then in all of these things, that it would be fueled by this sense of we care genuinely about other people. They're not just boxes that we're checking off. This is part of what God is producing within us. Let me tell you a few, I think, maybe surprising ways that this position on humility should shape us and apply to us as believers. Again, this is a highly applicable passage. So just a few points of application that I thought about as I was reading through this passage. Here's number one, humility in this sense, being other-centered, looking to the needs of others. Humility should shape our presence on social media. Let me put a challenge before us where we tweet or post or share or whatever it is that you do on social media. Think about this. Does this serve anybody else other than me? 
Does this serve anybody else other than me? Here's another one. Humility should shape our study. Students, let me talk to you in particular for a moment. And, I, and I, I know we have students at a lot of different levels at this room, okay? I know we have a lot of college and graduate students, and this applies in the same way to college and graduate students. But I want to talk especially to high schoolers and middle schoolers and elementary school students. I want you to think for a moment about how in your study, you should be focused on other people. Let me tell you why I'm talking to you. Because all those other folks I mentioned, the college and the graduate student, they choose to go to school. You go to school because somebody's making you go to school right now. I hope you also enjoy it. But in those moments, how can you be faithful to God? Sisters and brothers, little brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. God is teaching you something in those classrooms that is going to enable you to serve other people. And you want to know what the result's going to be? The day is going to come where the things that you're learning in school are going to help you do something where you serve others and God is going to be pleased with it. So I would encourage you, little sisters and brothers, that in those days that it just seems like school is taking forever, and you're saying, how in the world does this connect with things that matter? Trust God that it does. Be humble and look for how this knowledge is going to help you serve others. And here's the last one. Humility should shape both our tone and our boldness in sharing truth. Humility should shape both our tone and our boldness in sharing truth. Let me tell you something, sisters and brothers. It is an act of pride to beat people over the head with a Bible verse or with a doctrine so that you feel good about yourself or so the people that are in your circle think, man, there's someone zealous for truth. If you're motivated in the way that you are talking to others so that you feel good about yourself or other people are going to think, there's a great Christian, that's pride. You want me to tell you something else? So here's the other side of this. It is an act of pride to bend on biblical doctrine so that more people will like you. You're not actually doing that out of love for others. You know who you're doing that out of love for? You're doing that out of love for you. So here's what humility looks like. Humility looks like, God, show me what you're saying in the Scripture. And as you make this clear to me, I'm going to say to others, this is what God wants us to know. And I'm telling you this because God loves you. That's being other-centered. That's being humble in the way that we share. So we see all this, and it's showing us that humility is a common goal. Let me make one side note before we get to our final point. Here's the side note. There's something here that also connects humility and pastoral concern. And I don't want to skip over it. I love what, what Paul says in verse 2. Make my joy complete. That's the only verb in this text that's a command. It's the only time that Paul clearly just says, do something. This whole thing is pointing us towards being humble. But it's the only time he says, do something. And what he says is, in all of this thing, all these things you do, in this humility, you're making my joy complete. Do that. There's one of the things that strikes me here, and that is Paul just really wants the good of the church in Philippi. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. I love these verses, especially verse 21. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So for Paul... He's in a situation where he says, you know something? If I had to choose between living and dying, I actually think that dying is going to be better because death is just the path to resurrection. 
but God has shown me that in my life I might serve you and I care more about you than I do me. Sisters and brothers, I want to supply this in two ways. One is I just want to tell you, and I want to encourage you, First Baptist New Orleans, this is, this is what you look for in pastors. This is what you hold pastors accountable to in their pastoral care for you. Do we care about you? Do we put your needs above ours? Do we have this love to see the church flourish? And then secondly, I want to tell you, as you pray for your pastors, this is the end of which you need to be praying for us. That, that we would have this sort of love and affection, this sort of humility towards the church. Let me give you one particular way not right now that we can be praying, not just for our pastors generally, but for Chad in particular. Chad, I did not tell you I was going to do this. I didn't know you were going to be here. It would have been less awkward. <laughs> Chad just was elected vice president of the Louisiana Baptist Convention. Okay? Now, that's the kind of thing that, that a lot of people, whether they intentionally or not look at that, are like, man, you know, Th- those account- that gives me influence in the denomination and people are going to think I'm a big deal. There's a way as a church that we could look at that and we could be like, our pastor is the vice president of the Louisiana Baptist Convention, right? A position that we should all know, probably most of us didn't know existed last week, right? <laughs> Here's why I want to encourage you to pray for humility. I've known Chad a long time. Actually, whenever I was thinking about what is humility and I told you I, I could think of more humble people than just a sentence that described it. Chad's a humble guy. And by that, I simply mean I have watched him and I've watched his family and throughout my experience with them in ministry, which, which is, is one that's been going for years now, I've seen them put the needs of others before the needs of themselves. That's humility. So here's the prayer. That as God, by grace, increases Chad's capacity for service to others, that Chad would continue to see that as service for others. And brother, I just want to thank you because I see that in your approach to the different leadership roles that you have. But I want us to be reminded, church, And I would ask you to pray this for all folks that you see stepping into leadership positions. There's a poison to this world and none of us are immune to sin. And so as we recognize that and we pray for that and we thank God for elevating godly brothers and godly leaders into leadership, pray also for grace that a true spirit of humility would be preserved. Which brings us to the question, how are we humble? Look at chapter two, verse one. Here's the last point. How are we gonna be humble? When we pray that God preserve a spirit of humility among our body, among our pastors, among our leaders, how, where, where does it come from? Where does humility come from? I told you the Lions Club can't have this, right? That, that's not a mark of just good folks. It's not a life hack. So where does it come from? Here's the last point. Humility flows from God's presence with us. Humility flows from God's presence with us. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 1. If then there's any consolation, sorry, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So here's what Paul has done. Remember that sentence that we started with? Where he basically said that what Paul has done is he said, hey, if God is with you, this is what's going to happen. If God is with you, that humility is going to be a common goal, and humility is going to display itself by being others-focused and not self-focused. That's what this passage is about. I wanted us to end here because I want us to end on the most important thing. I don't want us to look at humility as like some sort of life hack. I don't want us to look at humility saying, man, you know, be in humility, I'll, I'll be a really great guy. It's not a box to check off. It's produced not by reaching down inside yourself. You'll never find it there. You'll find it only in the presence of God. Some humble folks miss out on promotions and accolades. Some humble folks 
struggle to fit into communities and organizations that are all about self-promotion. Some humble folks are going to get accused of being prideful, even though they actually are more concerned about being humble and serving others than they are looking the part. So why be humble? Why try? Because humility comes from recognizing and celebrating the presence of God among his people. Look at the word if. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete, Paul says. Where does humility come from? Humility comes from the presence of God. And I just, I'm just going to call your attention to something here. Paul speaks about God in this way in a, in, a, in a regular basis. We see this pretty clearly like in Romans chapter 5. Paul talks a lot about the encouragement of Christ. He talks about a, a lot about the love of the Father. And he talks a lot about the fellowship or community with the Spirit. In other words, Paul here is writing in a way that we can recognize as, as reminding us that, that this is what is produced whenever we are in the presence of the God who, who is the Father, who has sent the Son, who has sent the Spirit. That's, that's who this is. In the presence of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will be a humble people. And you want to know why? Because if we're actually in His presence, if we're actually in God's presence, then I'm going to be overwhelmed by the fact of I am not a big deal and I want to do whatever you want me to do. And so humility comes from being in God's presence and having that confession. I'm not a big deal. You're a big deal, God. And then seeing the clear teaching of Scripture over and over and over where God says, I am glorified when you think about others. And so humility comes from me saying, I'm not a big deal. God's a big deal. And then serving others because that is what God has told me pleases him. Sisters and brothers, just a couple of things that I want to challenge us on here. Number one is that this is going to, this, this understanding that this flows from the presence of God, this is going to show us that there is no true humility without reception of the gospel. Let me encourage you, sisters and brothers, if you are here and you're a believer, be encouraged by this. If you're here and you're not a believer, you have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, I want to, to ask you to be challenged by this. That is, if you are outside of Christ, in reality, all you have is either pride or self-loathing, but you're not going to have any humility. What the gospel does is the gospel tells us that I am a broken person. I am both sinner and sinned against. And what the gospel tells me is that the Father has sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life, lives a humble life. Next week, Chad's going to show us how Jesus is the model for anything we're talking about today. He's the model for humility, sends the Son to live a perfect life. And then Jesus dies and is resurrected and has victory over death. And then whenever Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, the Father sends out the Spirit to equip and to call and to comfort and to indwell the church. It's not for no reasons that we say that we are the house of God when we are gathered together because the Spirit is in us. And when we look at that, when we look at that, we can say, I'm not a big deal. But before that, you're either going to think you're a very big deal or you're going to think you're scum. And the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to gravitate towards one side or the other. It's only the gospel that is going to place you in a position of humility. So if you are here, you're a non-believer, 
I want you to understand that everything we've talked about about humility is predicated on that gospel, that good news. If you don't have it, if you have not received it, we would love to talk with you about that this morning. Our pastors would be glad to talk to you, but let me tell you, if you're here at First Baptist New Orleans, you don't have to just talk to a pastor. Ask somebody near you what the gospel is about, and you're going to have people gather around you. Second thing I want to point out here, sisters and brothers, what we've been seeing here that the presence of God points us towards humility is something that for us we should say we need to be living humbly now because it reminds us that humble service in God's presence, that's the destiny of the happiest people on this earth. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is Revelation 22, 1 through 5. We're going we're gonna to read this and then go into a time of taking the Lord's Supper and celebrating Christ's presence. Revelation 22, 1 through 5 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And here's what the happiest people on earth will be doing. And his servants will worship him. His servants will worship him. That's where humility comes from. God, I see what a big deal you are. And so I am your servant, and I'm going to worship you through obedience. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we ask that you would produce in us true humility. We've seen, Father, that humility comes not, not simply from and not at all from reaching down inside of us, but instead that it flows from your presence. Father, I pray that humility would be a mark of the, the people of, uh, of, of your covenant community who are gathered at First Baptist New Orleans. I ask, Father, that you would make us by your power and by the presence of your spirit a humble people. And Father, I pray that all of this would live out in very practical but also very profound ways, that you would glorify yourself, that you would bring people to repentance and bring them to the gospel, that you would show people your goodness in your glory as we as your people go about lives where we put others ahead of ourselves and consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Father, this is a simple prayer, but it's a prayer for a miraculous act to be done among us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.